Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Arvind Ravikumar, Assistant Professor of Energy Engineering at Harrisburg University of Science and Technology in Pennsylvania. I'll talk with Arvind about methane emissions from oil and natural gas systems, their effect on climate change, new technologies which can detect and reduce those emissions, and what governments are doing to encourage the deployment of those new technologies. Plus, Arvind will give us an update on how climate change is affecting the annual Iditarod race in Alaska. Stay with us. Arvind Ravi Kumar from Harrisburg University, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thanks for having me. So Arvind, we're going to talk about methane emissions, the environmental implications. We're going to talk about technologies related to methane uh, and more. But before we do that, we always like to learn how uh, our guests got interested in energy and environmental topics in the first place. So kind of what was your path to uh, the world of energy and the environment? And how did you find yourself working on methane emissions? Sure. It's kind of almost by accident that I came onto this field. And I'd even say it's one of the more riskier decisions I've made in my career. Uh, while I was in grad school at Princeton, I was working on developing lasers and sensors uh, that measured gases in the environment and human health applications for, say, disease markers. Uh, and by series of coincidental meetings, I got involved in a student group called the Princeton Energy and Climate Scholars, which is mostly a group of 20 students interested in, in the broad energy and environmental space from different departments. Uh, this was Princeton's way of getting students together from various schools so they can work on interdisciplinary questions. Right. Um, I listened to people. I got very interested in energy and environmental policy. And against all practical advice, when I was desperately trying to finish my dissertation in my fifth year, I decided to take two graduate classes at the Woodrow Wilson School for Public Policy, <laughs> which was not the most fun year. It's just, it just became too much work. But that's where I got introduced to a lot of uh, energy and climate policy and energy systems. And I decided my fifth year, now is the right time to switch fields and, and get more involved in this. Uh, so it was a gamble uh, through connections from my professors. I, I got in touch with Adam Brand at Stanford, and that's when I moved into methane. And luckily for me, right when I started on methane, this is late 2015, early 2016, was also when the Obama administration was also interested in, in developing methane policy right. and the U.S., Canada, Mexico uh, methane regulation agreement was signed. And so it became a lot of coincidental events that, that got me into this field. But the interesting thing is, once I started working on this and talking to policymakers and, and businesses, it became very clear soon that you know my background in engineering and developing these sensors would be very useful uh, from a technology perspective, looking at methane mitigation and how new technologies can become more cost effective in managing uh, the climate problem. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's, that's so fascinating. I, I mean, I think probably the majority of people who we have on the show when we ask them that question of how they got into energy and the environment, it's, it's almost always, um, somehow by accident. Um, but yours certainly wasn't by accident. Uh, it was, it was a yeah, very conscious decision, um, at a, at a really interesting point in your career. That's fascinating. Right. So, um, so we will be talking about this issue of methane emissions. Um, 
you're you're an expert on it. I've worked on the topic uh, to to some extent as well. And um, but many of our listeners probably don't know a, a ton about methane. So so let's lay some groundwork. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what methane's role is uh, when it comes to climate change and sort of how it might compare to the gas that we hear more about, which is carbon dioxide? And can you give us some examples of what the major sources of methane emissions are, uh, anthropogenic sources um, in in the United States? or perhaps around the world? So methane, like carbon dioxide, is a greenhouse gas. And for the same amount of both gases, the key issue is that methane absorbs a lot more of infrared radiation. And this is what people mean when they often say that methane has a higher global warming potential. But there are key differences on climate impacts between methane and carbon dioxide. For example, one, one difference is that methane stays in the atmosphere for only about 12 years on average, as opposed to carbon dioxide, which stays for hundreds of years. So much of the warming impacts of methane is, is often in the initial few years of emissions, which is why it becomes very critical to reduce it now as much as possible. And the other interesting aspect that often uh, gets left out in discussions around methane is that because it has a short lifetime in the atmosphere, uh, it has very important and interesting implications for climate change and warming. For example, if annual methane emissions are constant, the warming associated with methane is also constant because methane sort of reaches a steady state in the atmosphere, which means its uh, concentration does not grow. It lives there only for 12 years. The interesting thing happens is, is when you start reducing methane emission, it actually reduces warming associated with methane. So in effect, you can consider reducing methane as acting as a cooling effect uh, in terms of climate change. This is really important because when you start reducing methane and you reduce the warming effect from methane, it gives you more breathing room, to, uh, so to speak, as far as carbon dioxide emissions grow. And therefore, when you talk of carbon budgets, you know, how much we can emit to keep global warming to say less than two degrees Celsius, reducing methane gives you that much more room uh, for carbon dioxide. And so you can develop all your uh, technologies, just carbon capture or negative emissions technologies for CO2 in a longer time frame than you would if you didn't stop methane emissions. I think this is a key difference between methane, uh, reducing methane emissions, and carbon dioxide. Right. It's a little bit more of a of a flow than a than a stock type of pollutant, which is how we think of carbon dioxide usually. Exactly. And the interesting thing is there are a lot of different sources of methane uh, that go through the atmosphere. For example, in the U.S., about 11% of our greenhouse gas emissions comes from methane, and the sources are fairly diverse. Uh, the oil and gas industry, which is one of the largest sources of anthropogenic methane, is about 33%. And this is spread all the way from production at oil and gas fields, uh, all the way to distribution pipelines under our homes. Mm-hmm. Agriculture is uh, another big source for methane. So you have uh, fermentation, uh, you have manure management, you have uh, cows and rice fields uh, that also release a lot of methane. And that in total, it corresponds to about 37%. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next big source is from landfills and waste management uh, in cities and states uh, across the world, and that's about 20%. And there's also methane from coal mining operations, which is what we call coal bed methane, and that's the rest of methane, which is about 10%. So there's, there's a lot of diverse sources of methane, and if you really look at solutions for managing or mitigating these emissions, uh, 
some some sectors are easier than other sectors. And the key question is, how do we reduce methane from all of these different sectors? Right. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why there's been so much interest in the oil and gas sector is because many people uh, have argued that oil and gas systems are a relatively low cost opportunity for reducing methane emissions. And, you know, a large part of that is because natural gas is for the most part methane. So companies are often in the business of producing and selling the stuff. So it's logical that uh, they would be able to capture it at a relatively, uh, in a relatively inexpensive way. So when natural gas does come out of a well, uh, can go through pipelines, processing facilities, it could leak anywhere along that value chain and and have the climate change effect that, that we've been talking about. So in the last 10 years or so, there's actually been a lot of debate about this topic because uh, of the shale boom, all the growth in US oil and natural gas production. There have been a bunch of studies that have come out uh, trying to assess how much methane is actually being emitted uh, across the value chain. So can you get us up to speed on kind of our, our current state of knowledge of methane emissions from the oil and gas system in the US? And there's, there's kind of several parts of this that I'm interested in. And we we might not be able to get to all of them, but but three of them that I would throw out there are, you know, if we think about the percentage of natural gas that's produced in the U.S., how much of that is emitted as methane? People often use those percentage terms. Um, second, uh, what are the major sources within the oil and gas system? So is all that methane coming from wells? Is it coming from distribution networks underneath my house and your house? Um, and then there are still uncertainties here on this topic. So so what do we know and what do we still really need to know when it comes to methane? So I've been talking too long and I've just asked you three big questions. So take any uh, pieces of those that, that you'd like. Sure. Uh, I'm going to start with the uncertainty part because it's it's really key to understanding why m- measuring methane emissions is, is far more difficult than measuring, say, carbon dioxide emissions. So the problem with methane, let's just take the oil and gas sector as an example the problem is that methane is emitted from a lot of different sources. So unlike carbon dioxide, where you know in the power plant you put a sensor on a on a stack uh, from which carbon dioxide is released, it measures total volume in a given year. The problem with methane is that at a production facility or a pipeline or distribution system, there are so many different components that can actually leak methane. So in a processing facility, you can have you know hundreds of equipments, and you can have each equipment can have tens of different components that can potentially leak. And now you look at this and you multiply it by the number, the hundreds and thousands of wells in the country, the millions of miles of transmission and distribution pipelines. You're looking at a very large, very dispersed set of equipments that can potentially leak. And measuring them individually is a humongous task. So what people normally do is they measure a small part of it, and then using that data and sophisticated statistical analysis, they extrapolate that to all of the United States. And because of this, there's a lot of uncertainty. Right. And and that's where the big uncertainty errors and numbers uh, come from. Yeah. I mean, I think oftentimes people associate methane with the rotten egg smell that they might smell in their kitchen if the, the natural gas has been left on. But um, you know, many of our audience listeners probably know this, but that smell is actually something called mercaptan, which is added to natural gas uh, before it is delivered to end-use customers. So it's not like you can see or smell natural gas out in the field where it's being produced or transported across most of these pipelines and just adds another layer of complexity to detecting it. Exactly. And and because it's not visible, you need different kinds of sensors to actually see it. And what makes it even more difficult is that it's not something 
where we have predictive power. We can't say when a leak is going to happen. It just happens because you know, things get old, there's wear and tear, someone makes a mistake. And so all of these random events makes it even more difficult to figure out when and how much uh, methane em- is emitted across different facilities. Right. So can you give us a sense of that um, percentage figure we were talking about earlier? And, you know, this this is a number that's been much debated, but, uh, you know, based on what we know um, currently, do you have a sense or maybe a range of what we think methane emissions might be on a national scale? Sure. So there's been a lot of studies in the past five years that measured methane emissions in different parts of the country. Uh, there was a recent paper in Science by Ramon Alvarez uh, from EDF that sort of took all these recent studies and tried to get uh, get at a best estimate of what the methane emissions are. Uh, they figured out that the number is about 2.3%. What they're saying is out of gross natural gas production in the U.S., 2.3% of it gets emitted into the atmosphere. This number is, is interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, it's a good number in that uh, a lot of recent studies have coalesced around the 2 to 3% value. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, on the lower end of some of the more out there predictions on, on methane emissions. But this 2.3% number masks a lot of nuance. One thing is it's very location dependent. There have been a lot of studies where we find that emissions, say, in a gas-rich play, for example, the Marcellus in Pennsylvania, have tend to have lower emissions uh, than, say, an oil-rich play, for example, Bakken in North Dakota. So there's a huge variation uh, underlying the 2.3% number. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at the life cycle or the stages of, of natural gas production and use, what we find is that most of methane emissions is is concentrated in the production and the gathering systems. So gathering systems is basically those pipes uh, that, that gather gas from different production wells and bring them together for the next stage, which is processing them and cleaning them up. From a numbers perspective, if you look at it, about 80% of this 2.3% number comes from the production and gathering stage. Right. The processing, transmission, and storage actually corresponds to only about 20%. So a lot of efforts in reducing methane should ideally be directed towards the front half of the portion, the production, and the gathering system. Right. Great. And so um, so there have been a variety of efforts in this area, uh, both on the technology side and on the policy side, to try to figure out smart ways to to reduce these emissions. And I know, you know, one thing that you've done a whole lot of work on is looking at some of these new technologies and, and trying to get a sense of what might be most cost effective uh, in allowing us to identify and eventually reduce emissions from, you know, the places they occur. And as you said, that's primarily uh, what we'd call upstream, so near production and, and gathering facilities. So can you tell us a little bit about about how methane emissions have been detected in the past and what some of these new technologies are that are emerging and how or or why that uh, they're better than the older technologies? Sure. So when it comes to managing methane emissions, there are essentially two policy tools that most jurisdictions use uh, to reduce them. So companies and even the governments um, split methane emissions into two different aspects. One are leaks which happen because of errors and which cannot, uh, or so far cannot be predicted early on. The other category are vents. Venting emissions are emissions that are expected that are part of a process of different processes that happens at a facility. Right. 
And those are usually for safety reasons and things like that, right? Right. Those are usually for safety reasons and, and how certain operations work. Uh, and those are normally regulated by putting an annual cap on venting emissions. So if you have a facility, this is how much gas you produce. Every facility will have a cap on how much they can vent. The other part, which is the leaks and which is where new technologies come in, is typically regulated through a process called as leak detection and repair. What this basically means is uh, operators are required to go out on their facilities and look for leaks periodically. In some jurisdictions, it's once a year. In some other places, it can be 12 times a year. Hmm. And the way it's done is often using something called as infrared cameras. These are basically like uh, handheld camcorders and uh, they operate very much like any other camera would, but they operate in the infrared region because that's where you can make methane visible. And so typically two people walk around a facility with a camera in their hand, looking at every single piece of equipment that's there and see if, if any of them are leaking. Right. It works. Uh, it has good sensitivity and, and operators can usually find most of the leaks uh, in their facilities. But the problem is it's very slow. Right. I mean, a facility, for example, two people can can finish five to six facilities or well sites in a given day. And so if you're looking at hundreds and hundreds of facilities, that's a long time. And if if the regulation is that you have to do it 12 times a year or once a month, that becomes a lot of physical uh, manual labor and that exponentially increases the cost of doing these surveys. And so the key goal for, for leak detection and repair programs going into the future is, is how to reduce the cost of of doing these surveys and how best to automate it as much as possible so there's not as much manual labor involved. Yeah, that makes sense. And so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, broadly what some of these new technologies are, some of these new systems and, um, you know, how they how they differ from, you know, two, two people walking around uh, oil and gas uh, field uh, with a camera? Right. And this is sort of the most exciting part of, of the whole methane problem in that because of regulations uh, spurred by both states as well as federal government as well as Canada, there's been a lot of activity from entrepreneurs and, and startups to develop new, faster and more cost-effective methane detection systems. So you, you're seeing this whole host of different companies that are developing uh, new technologies. So on on the one end, you have all these low-cost sensors that are stationary, that, that are continuous monitoring. So you just put them on the field and they continuously monitor emissions. And through Wi-Fi systems, they basically send you real-time data into the control room. Mm-hmm. This does not require any manual intervention. And more interestingly, uh, it is continuous. So it's not about doing it once a year or t- two times a year. It's about every minute of 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 the sensor that's there, it, it tells you information on your site, which is great. But there are also other new fascinating technologies. So you have sensors that are deployed on trucks, that are deployed on drones, and deployed on airplanes. So now you have a sensor on an airplane that can fly really fast, about 100, 150 uh, 50 knots or kilometers an hour. They can fly over a large region very quickly and, and tag emissions. Uh, this is really cool because now you can cover a much larger area in a much shorter time. And so the cost of this technology is spread over how many other facilities are under its range. Right. The key is sort of there's a trade-off between uh, you know speed and sensitivity sometimes. So, for example, an airplane cannot detect the smallest leaks that a ground crew can detect. 
and, and the question becomes, where's that trade-off? Where's that balance? How do you strike the balance between sensitivity and, and the speed uh, at which you need these things done? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And so the airplane can, or the drone can go over and give you a sense of, you know, very coarsely where where are the big problem areas, and then you can, you know, you can dispatch a crew to that area. Whereas the more manual uh, field level, uh, you know, two people walking around with a camera uh, approach is much more sensitive, but of course takes a lot more time and, and perhaps a lot more money. Um, how much are these technologies actually being deployed today in the field in the U.S. and and kind of what do do you have a sense of the mix of technologies that are out there like is is the flyover approach um you know happening a lot today or is it something that's still kind of at a pilot phase so that's a very interesting question and it's it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem here uh, and the way it works is this every new technology for for leak detection service needs to be approved by the regulator saying that you know the emissions reductions that you get from this new technology is at least as good as the ones you get from the old technology and what the regulators are saying is, you know, we can't just approve a new technology without looking at the data, without looking at how they perform. Uh, while the operators are saying, you know, we can't pilot these new technologies without knowing that they will be approved in the future because otherwise we are just wasting a bunch of money. Yeah. And so there, there's this chicken and egg situation here. And what scientists uh, are trying to do is to sort of bridge this gap. Uh, you know, we just finished something called the Mobile Monitoring Challenge, where we invited about 10 technologies uh, to, to test and, and evaluate their performance. And we see this happening more and more in the future, where uh, operators, scientists, as well as policymakers collaborate on trying to get some of the newer technologies out into the field and develop this sort of what we call the equivalence problem, proving that you know, new technologies are at least as good as the old ones in introducing emissions. Right now, there are many companies that are starting some pilot phases. Uh, we are actively working with, with regulators as well as uh, operators to, to help to get these technologies out there in the field and, and test their real-world performance. Uh, I think there's a lot of movement. Uh, there's a lot of interest from the regulatory side where policymakers are interested in, in getting these new technologies uh, approved. And so uh, everyone is coming together to see what we can do uh, to solve this challenge and, and evaluate these technologies for full deployment. Great. So when it comes to this issue of regulation and, um, you know, the, the chicken and egg problem that you describe, you know, there are a number of state governments in the U.S. and, and also provincial governments in Canada that are, uh, you know, just in the last few years, they've been rolling out new methane emissions regulations on the oil and gas sector. So are there uh, examples of policies or, or regulatory approaches that are out there uh, from a particular state or a particular province that are that are helpful in allowing some of these new technologies to be deployed? Or are they all still kind of wrestling with this chicken and egg problem? That's a very good question. I think to some extent, a lot of governments are, are trying to figure out how best to move forward with these new technologies. Uh, I would say the most advanced uh, in terms of policy making would be the state of Colorado and the province of Alberta. Uh, they have been up front and center on this issue and are actively working with, with scientists and operators to, to develop uh, these equivalence approaches so that new technologies can be introduced in, in the methane mitigation uh, space. Uh, one example uh, is the state of Colorado. Uh, we are working with them collaboratively and we just started something called as the A-Fold Initiative, 
uh, AFOL stands for Accelerating the Future of Leak Detection, which is basically uh, developing a framework to systematically evaluate new technologies and move them through the regulatory process where uh, they have a chance to be approved uh, by the state of Colorado for, for leak detection operations. Uh, this is a joint effort between uh, industry, academia, and the government. A lot of state government regulators are, are looking at this and interested in this and part of this uh, initiative. Uh, I think in the next few months and years, you'll see something come out of, of this work in terms of you know, selecting a few technologies to see uh, whether uh, they will be deployed in the facilities. Simultaneously, Canada, because they have um, a, a federal methane emissions regulation, each province is trying to develop their own framework to comply with federal regulations and also make it more cost effective for their own province. And one example is, is Alberta. Uh, they are very, very interested with all these new technologies. Uh, and we are working with them as well to help them assess some of the new technologies uh, and and have them as part of, of their regulatory framework. Great. That makes sense. And it's so interesting to to hear about all these things developing. Um, one, one note just to, to add on to your comments, some of our listeners might be wondering uh, you know, why are we talking about states in the U.S.? Why aren't we talking about the federal government? And um, the answer to that is that the the federal government uh, under the previous administration did develop some regulations for methane emissions from the oil and gas sector. Um, but those regulations are uh, sort of currently on hold and uh, potentially on their way uh, to removal under the, the current Trump administration. So, um, so right now, the action is really at the state level when it comes to methane emissions in the United States. Uh, in Canada, of course, it's a different story. Right. So great. This has been fascinating, uh, Arvind. Thank you so much for sharing all of this information about methane. We're going to move on to our final segment, uh, which we do for, for all of our guests. And we like to ask you what you've been reading or what you've been watching or listening to that you find really fascinating and that you'd recommend to our listeners. And Kristen Hayes, my co-host, and I have decided that we want to get in on the action as well. So I'm going to make a recommendation uh, very quickly and then turn it over to you uh, to hear what you're most interested in lately. And the the top of the stack item for me today is is not really... Uh, anything to read or see. It's just a factoid related to methane, which is oftentimes when people talk about cows and methane, uh, people giggle a lot because they say that uh, cows fart methane. Uh, and I learned fairly recently that that's not exactly true. It, it, cows actually mostly burp methane, right? So cows have four stomachs, uh, and most of the fermentation happens in the first two stomachs of the cow. And so uh, so most of that methane comes out of the front end of the cow rather than the back end of the cow. So that's my little factoid on methane of the day. <laughs> and now, Arvind, let me uh, turn it over to you and, uh, and ask you what you've been uh, reading and watching these days. Uh, definitely. And I think I'm going to make two recommendations. And one is one of them is way out there. And I don't think any of your listeners would have heard this before. So I'm a huge fan of mushing and I follow the Iditarod very carefully every year. Uh-huh. And one of the great things or one of the most interesting things I've been seeing, especially over the past year, is how much climate change has affected uh, Alaskan communities uh, in the Arctic. So for, for those listeners who do not know, the Iditarod is called the, the last great race on earth. It's a thousand mile uh, race uh, with mushing and typically about 50 to 80 contestants take part every year. Uh, and it goes from Anchorage and Alaska to Nome, which is on the Bering Sea coast on the Western coast of Alaska. 
you, typically the race happens in March and and large portions of the trail go on sea ice. But what happened this year was that sea ice off the coast of Nome in the Bering Sea has been completely absent. And so they have been forced to move the trail for the race on land because there's no sea ice there. And this is something that's, that's never happened in the history of this race. And over the past few years, we have been seeing many of, of these mushing races up in the Arctic being cancelled because of poor trail and snow conditions because there's been no snow. And I think the rate of change that they see in these Alaskan communities is is very stark compared to what we are seeing in the lower 48. And, and this is something that often gets lost in the news that climate change is affecting these communities so much these days. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And, you know, when people talk about climate change, we often talk about global average mean temperatures. But as you point out, uh, different parts of the world warm at different paces. And, and, and the Arctic, I, I believe, uh, you know, is expected to warm much faster uh, yep. than, than average temperatures. Mm-hmm. And so you had a second recommendation as well? Yes. Uh, I just recently came across a paper from uh, one of my former colleagues on, on methane, uh, where they were looking at how methane leakage affects uh, emissions across a whole host of products that use natural gas as feedstock. And what they say, what they find is that in addition to oil and gas emissions, uh, methane leakage has a huge impact on, say, plastic and fertilizer production. Uh, and current estimates of emissions from those sectors do not accurately account for leakage. And I think going forward, that is something we have to look into, and it's going to be a big part of the conversation when, when talking about uh, the, the climate benefits of, of using natural gas and how methane leakage actually impacts those benefits. Yeah, great. So for listeners who want even more methane, after listening to us talk about it for 30 minutes, Arvin, what, who were the authors of that paper so people can uh, can find it? It's Emily Grubert. She's now an assistant professor at Georgia Tech. Great. And um, we'll put a link to that uh, to that paper up on our show page. So Arvind Ravi Kumar, uh, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights on methane and, uh, and mushing and, and everything in between. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think. So please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.